How many of you remember uh, what your very first job was? Like your very first, like clock in, clock out, get a legitimate paycheck job. My, fir- my very first job was at a drugstore in Bayberry Plaza in Liverpool. I think it's a Rite Aid now, but back then it had the greatest name ever for a drugstore, and it was simply called Try Our Drugs. Try Our Drugs. T-R-I hyphen, the letter R hyphen drugs. I'm not sure you could get away with that anymore, but uh, that's where I worked. That was my first job, try our drugs. And I had two responsibilities. I was the stock boy, so I was the one that filled all the shelves of the convenience store, but I also was a drug dealer. I was. I, I, I delivered drugs to people's homes. Like that was, my, that was one of my jobs. If somebody was a shut-in and couldn't get to the pharmacy to pick up their drugs, they would put me in this big blue van with rear-wheel drive, because I remember because in the winter it was a nightmare to drive this van, and I would drive it right to your home, and I would deliver drugs right to your house. Very, very, uh, very interesting start to my career. Uh, I feel like I was a little underpaid for a drug dealer, but it was a good job. It was, it was, it was 1995. And my minimum wage in 1995 was $4.25. But I thought I was rolling in it. Like, I thought I was rich. I was so excited. I got my first check, and I ripped it open. And I knew how many hours I had worked, and I knew how much I was getting paid per hour. And I did the math in my head, and I was expecting a certain number at the end of the check, but it was very different. And I was like, what is going on? And so I looked close at the check, and I saw this coded language that indicated that somebody else was taking about a third of my money from me. And I was so angry. That was my introduction to the way taxes work. And by the way, public service announcement, your taxes are due this week. So either get your taxes in or get, a, get an extension or something. But the story that we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 20, it, it takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. He's, he's on his way to the cross. He's in Jerusalem. And all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this story, which means this is pretty important. And in the midst of all these really profound conversations that are happening in the last week of Jesus' life, there's a story about taxes. Luke, the historian, communicates to us this story. So let's read it together because there must be something here that we need to learn. We'll read beginning in verse 19 of Luke chapter 20. I'm reading, you to the, reading to you from the ESV translation. It's on your handout. It's in your Bible. It's also on the screens. And it says this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, speaking of Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they want to arrest Jesus, but they're afraid of what the people will think. Verse 20, so they, went, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, but so that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. The governor was Pontius Pilate. So they're trying to trap Jesus so that he'll say something that he can get arrested for saying. And here's the question. So they, said, they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Sounds like they like him, right? They don't. This is all just kind of blowing hot air, hot air here. Verse 22, here's the question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're not saying, is it lawful according to the Roman law? They're saying, is it lawful according to God's law to pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman ruler? Verse 23, but Jesus perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius. This was a Roman coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Whose image does that coin bear? And they said, Caesar. And he said to them, here's his answer. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. 
In order for us to understand this story, in order for this story to be helpful for us 2,000 years later, we have to understand a couple things about the culture. And there's two questions we have to answer right off the bat. Number one, what about this makes it a trap? And why is this a tax? So let's, let's talk first about the trap. Why is this a trap? Who asked the question? It was scribes and it was chief priests. It was members of the Sanhedrin who were really the Jewish religious rulers of the day. And in Mark's account of this story, he actually gives us some helpful information. He clarifies for us who actually asked this exact question. He says it was two groups. It was the Pharisees and it was the Herodians. Now, nobody would have expected the Pharisees and the Herodians to work together. It's like the Yankee fans and the Red Sox fans rooting for the same team, right? It's not going to happen because we all know God's team is the Yankees. And so, just kidding. The Pharisees and the Herodians, I see you, Joshua. I see you, Red Sox fan back there. The Pharisees and the Herodians were shockingly different from each other, but yet they worked together. Let me, let me explain how they're different. The Pharisees longed for a messianic kingdom. In other words, they wanted a Jewish Messiah to come, and that's who they maybe thought they were waiting for a Jewish Messiah who would come and overthrow the Roman rulers, overthrow governors like Pontius Pilate and Caesars, like Tiberius. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were on the other end of the spectrum. They didn't want a messianic ruler that would come ruin things. They actually had sold themselves out to the Romans. They were sellouts, and they were kind of had turned into their little sidekicks. The Pharisees maybe represented a conservative stream of Judaism, and, and, and the Herodians were more liberal in their convictions. But they had this one thing in common. They hated Jesus, and they wanted him dead. The Pharisees hated him because Jesus was disrupting their religious agendas, and he was... Um, taking away from them their influence and power over the people, religiously speaking. And the Herodians hated Jesus and wanted him dead because he threatened their political arrangements and alliances. And they had worked very hard to position themselves in the Roman government so that they could have power and influence. And so at the, at the heart of it, both of them saw Jesus as a threat to their power and their influence. And so they hated him and they want him dead. And here in the last week of Jesus' life, they're not just beginning their inquest, they're actually wrapping it up. They got a lot of stuff, and now they're trying to sort of like get the, get the hammer uh, or get the nail in the coffin here, so to speak. And it's a trap because if Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay this tax, don't pay this tax to that Roman blasphemer, then the Herodians, what they would do is they would run off to the Roman leaders like Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus would have been arrested as an insurrectionist, and he would have been executed. But if Jesus said to them, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You should probably pay that tax. Then the Pharisees were going to tell all the Jewish people that Jesus was a collaborationist. He was sympathetic to the Romans, and many would have abandoned him in disgust. And so you see the problem here. Any of you ever been asked a question where you're like, there's no good answer? I can't say anything and not get in trouble. You know, just pretend you didn't hear the question. That's my advice. <laughs> Jesus knows that no matter how he answers this, he's going to get in trouble. If he says yes, he's in trouble. Um, He's in trouble with the Herodians. Or sorry, if he says yes, he's in trouble with the Pharisees. If he says no, he's in trouble with the Herodians. This is a trap. Let's talk about the tax for a second. This tax that they're asking Jesus about, this was not a, this was not a tax on goods or services. Like, you know, we pay 8% tax on certain things. This was what's called a poll tax, P-O-L-L, -L, a poll tax. Basically, this was a tax simply for existing. Maybe like Social Security, except you didn't get it back later in life. And so this is a poll task that every Jewish adult male and adult female had to pay to the Roman emperor. And it didn't always exist. In fact, it was instituted in 6 AD. While Jesus was just a little child, the Roman Empire said, we want a denarius from every single Jewish man and woman. So they instituted this poll tax, and you can guess how it went over. 
Not very well. In fact, there's a man who was so angry about it, he became famous. His name was Judas the Galilean. This is not Judas, the disciple that ends up betraying Jesus or denying Jesus. Judas the Galilean, he, he begins to tell the Jewish people, don't register with the government, don't pay this tax, whatever you do. And actually, out of Judas's leadership comes a sect of Judaism that is known as the Zealots. And the Zealots eventually become the, the part of uh, the Jews that sort of help exacerbate the issue with the Romans so that in 66 and 70 AD, the Romans end up destroying Jerusalem because it's all tracked back, traced back to this tax. So this tax, to say the least, was very controversial. And then, to add insult to injury, the Romans said, not only is there a tax, but there's only one way you can pay the tax. Only one way. And the way you can pay the taxes with a denarius. A denarius was a Roman coin. It was the equivalent of a daily wage. So it was what you would make in one day. It was a silver Roman coin. And on the coin, was this, it bore the image of Caesar. One side had the bust of Tiberius Caesar and this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. They believe that his father, Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar when Jesus was born, was a god. And so the coin showed a picture of Caesar Tiberius, and then basically underneath it said, Son of God. And then if you flipped it over, it was a picture of Tiberius' mom. Now, you know how moms are. She's going to get in on this, right? Like, she was like, listen, buddy, I raised you. I changed your diaper. Like, if you get a coin, I'm on the other side. And so there's a picture of her on the other side, and the, and the inscription says, Pontifex Maximus, which simply means high priest. Now, this coin really offended the Jewish people for two reasons. Number one, Every time they looked at it, it was a reminder that they were ruled by the Romans. But secondly, the actual coin itself was a violation of the Ten Commandments. God had told them, don't make any graven images to any other gods. And there was a graven image made out to the Son of God. And so, in some ways, every time the Jewish people were forced to pay this annual tax of a denarius, it forced the Jewish people to worship a false god. And they didn't want to do that. At the very least, it was humiliating and it was diluting their cultural and religious uniqueness. And so I'm sure the Pharisees were making the case, we shouldn't have to pay this tax. Sure, other taxes, but not this tax. This tax is an offense to God. And so they come to Jesus with this question, is it lawful in God's eyes for us to pay this tax to Caesar? And Jesus says, show me a denarius whose likeness is on it, whose image does it bear? And they said, this this has Caesar's image on it. And so he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God. What a brilliant answer. What an amazing answer. And with one brilliant answer, Jesus gives us two important warnings. And that's what we're going to look at together the rest of our time here this morning. The the two warnings are this. Number one, don't build the wrong kingdom. Don't build the wrong kingdom. And number two, don't bear the wrong image. All right? So let's talk about the first one. Don't build the wrong kingdom. You know what Jesus does here for us? If you're taking your notes, you can fill this in. Jesus provides us with right perspective. Right perspective. Jesus helps us see here that Christians are both citizens of heaven and earth at the exact same time. We're citizen, we have a citizenship in heaven. We belong to the kingdom of God, but we're also still citizens here in America, right? If you're an American citizen, you are a citizen of this country or you're a citizen of another country if you're not. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that we, do not have, we don't have to separate these kingdoms. We don't have to pit them against each other, and we don't have to neglect either one of them. The Christian experience is one of living as citizens of two very different kingdoms, the earthly and the heavenly, at the exact same time. 
And the reality of our dual citizenship, that you're a citizen in the kingdom of God and a kingdom here on earth, it's the source of great conflict internally and externally for Christians. How, how, how many of you every now and then when it comes to politics, you feel some tension internally? You know, you feel some tension externally. How many of you in this particular season, the last few years in our country, you've navigated as a follower of Jesus, how should I vote? What should I think? What should I say? Which issues matter most? And what do I do with this when it doesn't seem like maybe there's an option I love? And now what do I do? Where, where do I go? And so what they're wrestling with 2,000 years ago, we're still wrestling with today. And as we head into a, a next year with a presidential election, it's only going to get ratcheted up, right? So what, what is... How do we engage with the government and the state as Christians? What does Jesus teach us here? What we do is we, we struggle. We have to admit first, it's a struggle, right? And I'll say this. If you're not struggling on some level, you maybe aren't really thinking about it enough. You really maybe are too, um, maybe you've limited yourself too much into one lane of thinking. If there's not some internal struggle, then maybe you need to revisit really how you feel about things. But there's a struggle to reorient our lives towards God's radically different present and coming kingdom while living in this world. And the reason why this is so hard is because everything in this world, according to the Christian worldview, is broken and affected by sin, right? Including our government and our leadership. I thought that maybe I'd get an amen there. Uh, our government and our leadership, all broken and affected by sin. So what do we do? Richard Halveston, who was a chaplain of the United States Senate, one time when he was talking about government, he said this. I thought this was helpful. He said, sure, to be sure, men, he says men, but men and women, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the, inherent, that the institution is inherently bad or evil or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave, even within good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. So the kingdom of God is here, but not fully here yet. It's not fully established yet. And so we have the kingdoms of this world, and we have governmental structures. And the structures in and of themselves are not bad or evil, but it's the fact that people just like you and me are running them that's what the problem is. People that have the same insecurities and selfishness and power hunger that you and I might have in different ways, they're sitting in those seats. That's really what the issue is. It's always the human heart, but it manifests itself in our governmental structures. And with the first part of Jesus' answer, I think Jesus, the first part of his answer is more surprising than the second part of his answer. Because in the first part of his answer, he says, render under Caesar what is his. The word render is pay his due. Give Caesar his due. Give him what he's due. Now, Caesar, Caesar, Caesar was a, he was a blasphemer. He claimed to be God. And so here, Jesus, like I'm sure that some of the Jewish people thought, surely Jesus is not going to say, we have to give this to him. He doesn't love God. He doesn't worship God. He actually thinks he's God. But Jesus assumes and affirms, listen, Jesus assumes and affirms the validity of the secular state and its demands and laws even when it's being ruled by a man who claims to be God. That's pretty startling. Think about that. Wrestle with that for a second. Jesus, with the first part of his answer, he assumes and he affirms the, of the validity and the value of a secular state and government, 
even when it's being ruled by Caesar Tiberius, who claims to be God. It's interesting. It's, it's, in Romans 13, Paul expands on Jesus' words, and he says this in verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every person, you know, no one's off the hook here, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, when Paul wrote this, when Paul wrote this letter, who was the governing authorities? It was Rome, and they were persecuting the Christians for their beliefs. They were right on the verge, really. It wasn't full-blown yet, but it was right on the verge of becoming just martyrs, just Christians being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. In the midst of that world, Paul says, be subject to your governing authorities. Now, regardless of how you feel about our government, our leadership right now, no one in our country has it as bad as the Christians had it when Paul wrote this. And still he said, be subject to the governing authorities. That's the command. Now, here's the reason, second half of the verse. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Does that cause any tension in you? Causes a little tension in me. Because if you think through history of some of the authorities and some of the atrocities, you, you, do you wrestle with that? How are they all, how has God placed those authorities in place? And how has he instituted all authorities? And why should we? Well, we have to keep in mind that people have choices. And we live in a broken, sinful world, and we're broken, sinful people. And so sometimes, I've heard it said, God, God uses crooked pencils to draw straight lines, doesn't he? Sometimes God allows what he hates maybe to accomplish what he loves. But it's a mystery. God over all authority. But this is what the scripture says. Now, of course, there are limits on the authority of the state. And in the Old Testament, we read one story where the, the, the ruler tells these three Hebrew boys, you're going to bow and worship this idol. And they rebel. It's civic duty, and they rebel. Why? Because they're being commanded to violate God's law. So if the government ever passes a law that forces you to violate God's law, this, that's a whole different conversation. But outside of that, we find ourselves in a tension where we are simultaneously building the kingdom of God without tearing down the kingdoms of this world simply because we lack Jesus' perspective. Now, Jesus' perspective on the government and the state was so different than many other Jewish people back then. There are really four different political parties back then. That sounds overwhelming, doesn't it? We got two, and it feels like our hands are full. I know we got more than two, but we got two major ones. They had four major ones. And the first one was this, the zealots. We talked a little bit about them. The zealots, their approach to the government was, we're going to stockpile. Like they, they were the ones that were stockpiling weapons, and they were just waiting for their time. They're like a little militia, and someday they were going to uh, militarily attack the Romans. That was the zealots. We're going we're gonna to attack. At the right time, we're going we're gonna to physically attack the Romans. That was the zealots. Then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually saw no connection between the state and religion. They wanted to keep them completely separate. They felt like religion should be in its lane and government should be in its lane and they have nothing to do with each other. The Sadducees, which was the third group, they were the accommodators. They were the ones who were trading in their integrity and their values and their sense of uh, uh, religious identity to be like the Romans. And then the fourth group was the Essenes. And the Essenes are how I want to be sometime. They just hid. They just hid. They just like literally moved out into the wilderness, formed their own little communities, put their heads in the sand, and just pretended like all the governmental stuff wasn't happening around them. Now think about those four. And, and isn't it true that those four approaches still exist in the Christian world today? That some Christians, they're like the zealots. They're, they're stockpiling. Like they're waiting and they're going to fight. They're going to fight someday uh, for, for, against the government especially when it gets really evil. Then some Christians are like the Pharisees. They say, well, the government's over there and the, my faith is over here and there's really, it's none of my business. 
There's no connection. They don't have anything to do with each other. Then there's some that are like the Pharisees. They've actually lost their, their identity as children of God because they're so in love with the power that politics offers, and they've sort of sold themselves out to go get power and to go get influence. And then some people, honestly, are like the Essenes. They don't pay attention. They kind of bury their heads in the sand. And all of us lean one way or the other. But Jesus, here's what I love about Jesus. He won't fall into any of those neat categories. And by the way, Jesus will frustrate you politically if you study him because he doesn't fall into any of your neat categories. In some ways, he's too conservative. In some ways, he's too liberal. He won't fall into either one. And so what do we do with this? We look at Jesus' perspective, and here's what Jesus' perspective is. It's his perspective is that there's two kingdoms, and God is over both, and God is at work in both, and both matter, but only one will last forever. Only one will last forever. And that leads us to our next thought here, which is Jesus defines our right priorities. So with his answer... Give unto Caesar what is his and give unto God what is his. Jesus helps us see that while we are both citizens of heaven and earth, we do not, listen, we do not give the same type of loyalty to both kingdoms, do we? Christians do not give the same sort of loyalty to the kingdoms of this earth as they do to the kingdoms of heaven. We reserve in our hearts certain loyalties that only go to God. And when Jesus said, render to Caesar, what he was saying is, you know, give Caesar what's his, but bear in mind, Caesar, Caesar's rights are limited Why? Because not everything bears his image. Not everything belongs to him. Our first and overriding loyalty is to God and his kingdom. So again, to summarize all of this, we must acknowledge that there is an authority and an order to society that must be obeyed. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be a good good citizen. You really should. The Bible instructs us to be a good citizen. You should take all your responsibilities as a citizen seriously, all your civic duty. You should be a great citizen. You should obey the laws of the land. However, simultaneously, you should be seeking his kingdom first. We have to learn to be people who can do both at the same time. Otherwise, we fall into one trap or the other. And when we have the wrong perspective and when we have the wrong priorities, you know what we do? We build the wrong kingdom. Some people are building the kingdom of personal gain. What can I get out of stuff? Trying to get stuff for themselves. And then some people are trying to build the kingdom of political power. And I think in some ways the church has made some missteps over the last 20, 30, 40 years, sort of allured and lured in by the possibility of power and the power that's available in politics. You know, actually, if you study the history of the church, and if you study the church around the world right now, I think this is true. When it comes to the church, power or access to power is a greater threat to the purpose of the church than persecution is. Let me say it again. Power or access to power is a greater threat, a greater danger to the purpose of the church, the true purpose of the church, than even persecution is. Persecution is terrible, and we pray for the persecuted church. But where does the church thrive and grow? Where it's persecuted. Where does the church lose its way and its identity and its sets of values? Whenever it gets power. That's the story of the early church. It explodes all the way up until 300 AD, and then you know, it's given all the power by the, by the leader of that time. Constantine makes it the official religion of Rome, and the next thing you know, it's perverted, it's polluted, and it's, it's, it's just filled with people who are hungry for power. So be careful about power. What do we do as Christians? How do we engage with politics? Uh, well, first off, I kind of answered it. We do engage. Don't disengage. Engage. You may get discouraged. You may want to disengage. Don't disengage. Stay engaged. We have a responsibility. Do your civic duty. If you have the right to vote, then do it. I mean, people died for us to vote, and people around the world would love to vote. So when we have the opportunities to vote, we we should be voting. We should pray for our leaders. Isn't that a surprising sort of off the, you know, outside the box thought? 
The Bible instructs us to pray for our leaders. Uh, don't, you don't have to say this, or you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, like, when's the last time you prayed for our government leaders, our president, our vice president, our Congress, our, our Senate, our governors, our mayors, our local assembly people? When's the last time we prayed for them? We like to rant against them. We like to complain about them. We like to post about them. And, of course, you can have, listen, you can have your concerns and you can express your concerns. You can have your disagreements and you can express your disagreements. But let's make sure that we're not totally neglecting the biblical call to also pray for them. I mean, they need a lot of prayer. You should get an amen out of that. They need a lot of prayer. Pray for wisdom. Pray for humility. Pray for grace. Pray that the Holy Spirit will break in on their hearts and surprise them with the goodness of Jesus. Pray that um, they'll make wise decisions. Pray that they'll handle their responsibilities well. Pray that they'll have good advice around them. Pray that people will speak truth to them. Some of these people, you get in so much power, no one will tell you the truth anymore. Pray for all these things. And so we pray. We, 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 we honor our leaders. We respect our authorities. You know, I think it's dangerous when we, again, when we have concerns and when we have disagreements, we should be able to express them. But you've learned by now, if you're married especially, there's a way to express a concern that's not disrespectful. If you haven't learned that yet, we'll, we'll do some counseling or something. But there, there is a way where you can say, I disagree without dishonoring them, right? There's a way to do that. And I think we have to model that better for this next generation, because our kids are paying attention to us. They, you know, they watch what we say about our government leaders. And as they get older, they see what we write and what we post and stuff, and they're paying attention. And we're informing them something about the value of authority. And so be careful with that. Have a voice, thoughtfully and biblically engage the issues, but never place your deepest hope in this kingdom. America is not the kingdom of God. America is not our great hope. Who sits in that White House is not the one who's going to be sitting on the throne at the end of time. It doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but in a bigger perspective, don't lose your joy and don't lose your peace and pay attention to how much power politics has over your emotions because it, be it may be an indicator that you got your priorities, right? And your perspective need a little more shaping by the grace of God. Okay, last point this morning. Don't build the wrong kingdom. And then Jesus also teaches us here, don't bear the wrong image. Now, when Jesus said, render under Caesar the things that are his, the crowd couldn't actually argue with that point, and here's why. At this, in this culture, at this time, they actually believed this. They believed that ancient coins were understood to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription were on them. So because Tiberius Caesar's inscription and picture was on the coin, they actually believed this is his personal property. It actually belongs to him. So when Jesus was saying, give to him back, he's basically giving him, give him back what's already his. So who can object to giving Caesar what was already his, what already bears his image? But here's the brilliance of Jesus' answer. He leads them into this question. He leads them into this tension. Here it is. If no one can object to giving to Caesar what's already his, who amongst us can object to giving to God what already belongs to him? what's already his, what already bears his image. And who bears his image? You and I bear his image. Genesis 1:26. God said, let us create humankind in our image. And so when Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are his, he's saying, this is all he has. It's this coin, this guy's picture. Who cares? Give it to him. Do your due diligence and do your civic duty. But listen, you bear the image of God. And so the bigger question here is, who are you giving yourself to? Give yourself as the image bearer to God. Now, why does image matter? As I finish, image matters because it does, it does two things for us. Once we know our image, who we've been made in the image of, it clarifies our identity and it clarifies our mission. You can't know who you are unless you know whose image you've been created in. And if you don't believe you've been created in the image of God, you'll, you'll, you'll search for another image to believe that you were created in. 
And it will form your identity, how you see yourself, and it will form your mission, how you live your life. Image always leads to identity, and identity always leads to mission. So let me give you three examples from this story. The Pharisees, their image was that they were, uh, were going to be like everyone else, or they were going to find uh, what they were looking for in power and in influence in religious circles. And it was their love for that religious power, and it was their love for that influence. And so their image was simply this idea, I am what I can get and, and what I can be seen and noticed for. And so their identity was, I am what I love. And if you are what you love and you're nothing more than that, then your mission will be to follow your heart and your desires and get everything you can. The Herodians, their image was that they were better than everyone else and their identity was, I am what I hate. And I'm gonna let others know what is wrong with them and I'm gonna keep my distance from them. But then we see Jesus in this story. So what we have here, we have the Herodians, I may have said this wrong, the Herodians who I am what I love. I love the Romans, so I'm becoming like them. You have the Pharisees, I am what I hate. I hate the Romans. So, and some of you, it's possible that your identity is being shaped by what you love in politics and what you hate in politics. And Jesus comes along with a totally different way. His image is, I've been created, you've been created by God. And so your identity is, I'm a child of God. And my mission is to bear his image well and to work to see his kingdom established here. Jesus had a mission when he came, and his mission was to reveal God the Father to the people and to bear the image of God perfectly in our place because you and I can't do it. We get it wrong. And let's finish by looking at a verse in Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at what he accomplished and how he accomplished it. I love this. This, this, this passage I'm reading to you, this was a hymn that the early church would have sung. And it simply says this, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus with God with flesh on. Jesus made God, God seen to us. He is the firstborn over, of all creation. Verse 16, it says that... Um, it says that, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. See what it teaches us there? All the power, all the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, the thrones, they were created by him, through him, and for him. 17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus perfectly bore the image of God and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love two things about this verse. I love, number one, that it tells us God created, Jesus created all power, all thrones, all rulers, all dominions. And what this means is we can trust in him to accomplish his purpose and his plans in those things and in spite of those things. But also he's the image of the invisible God and he created you and me and we bear his image. Yes, sin has effaced that image, but he's making it new. He's cleansing us. He's restoring us. He's making us whole. And how is he doing this? By the blood of the cross. It says that he reconciled us all to God by making peace at the, through the blood at the cross. Here's what, we, here's what we need to remember this morning. Jesus was the perfect image bearer. He went to the cross where he allowed himself to be broken and torn for you and me. Why? To restore our brokenness. We don't bear God's image perfectly. But here's the good news. Someday we will. Someday in the presence of God and for all eternity, we'll bear his image the way we are intended to bear his image. And in the meantime, what do we do? We trust in God and we ask God, God, help me to be a part of your kingdom 
and help me to bear your image well. Let's pray together this morning.